This is an ABC podcast. When Australians visit the United States, we tend to find that Americans will sometimes say something like, Australia sounds like a nice place, but I think I'm going to be killed by a snake or a spider or a giant kangaroo or a shark. And the shark is the biggest worry. And when you try to explain that you're more likely to die from having a piano dropped on you, they don't believe you. They've seen Jaws. They know the shark hates us and wants to kill us. Chris Pippin Neff is here today. Chris thinks that the language around shark incidents in Australia and in the United States is highly emotive and slightly mad. Chris works in public policy at Sydney University and he wants to change our thinking on the great big scary monsters that live under the sea. Chris has even gone out tagging sharks in Sydney Harbour, a job that obviously requires a degree of delicacy and expertise. Chris is originally from the United States and he knows what it's like to champion unpopular causes. He was raised in a small rural town. At school he had to wear a metal box on his chest, which doctors told him he needed to stay alive. And so when Chris grew up, his outsider status encouraged him to become someone who takes on impossible causes. Hi, Chris. Hi, Richard. Tell me about this town you grew up in, in Connecticut. Oh, it was a real trip. Um, 7,000 people, so big, big town. And my neighbor had a sign on their lawn that was spray painted and said, free metal. Free metal. Free metal. <laughs> so you could just, if you just needed a piece of aluminum, you just sort of wandered over. And it was that kind of, it was a very working class, blue collar, you know, salt of the earth kind of people. What was in the town? What did it have? Uh, a speedway. That was our big claim to fame was the Thomson Speedway. And, you know, in our family, we'd like set up shop. We'd have a camper and we'd go into the camping area and sell T-shirts or whatever was sort of unfair for the day. And I was one of those kids who hung out at the Speedway. And when you say Speedway, we're talking monster trucks, um, drag races, that kind of thing? There were monster trucks, there were drag races, and... There were NASCAR, right, so NASCAR, like right. NASCAR, you know, box, box racing. And was there a church in town as well? Was that a big thing uh, in the family yeah. life? We had like uh, Jonathan Edwards Church, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was his big sermon. Uh, congregational church, like a pilgrims, like an American pilgrim church from like the 1600s. All right, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yeah, that was one of his sermons. And, and you all, everyone learned it. And did the family go to that church? Oh, yeah. It, there was a few different churches that our family went to. My father was a Christian scientist. His church was a little different. That church didn't believe in going to doctors, and that's fine if that's your thing. But that church had its own sort of repertoire of things that they would do. And I got to take part in that as a little kid growing up. So I, I don't want to overstate this, but did that mean you sort of grow up seeing yourself and everyone else, I suppose, as this kind of broken, crooked bit of timber that desperately needs to be saved? Oh, yeah. Your I, sense of your own sinfulness, was that powerful? When I went to college, I went from this Congregationalist church to a Calvinist church, which is even possibly even more conservative and more evangelical than the one I'd grown up in. So, you know, growing up as a someone who was sort of flagrantly gay, you know, that made it a little bit more complicated. And so, like, as a result, one thing about this little town with this quite conservative church was that meant that I, I needed to go somewhere else to go to high school because I wouldn't have made it through high school as a teenager. My friend Mark Trevorrow told me that he had this sense of himself as a kid at 10 that he was going to be different and was worried about disappointing his parents, which really put a powerful desire to please his parents in him as a, as a kid and entertain them. Were you like that as well? Oh, yeah. I was a mama's boy for sure. Like if you were to sort of line up 10 gay blokes and sort of say, you know, who are you closer with, your mom or your dad? You know, the the overwhelming... I think vote would be that you wanted to prove your mom, you know, that you were a good son, that you were a good kid, that you were a good member of society and an overachiever. You sort of worked twice as hard. 
And when you see, you know, high achieving people from really from any marginalized community, whether it's immigrant communities or whether it's sexuality, gender identity, whatever it is, you know, they tend to be overachievers. Like they're working hard. They're proving themselves. I am a good person. I deserve to live yeah. in this world. Your farm, the family farm, had railroad tracks going through it. Yeah. So, so cows is our is our trade. Right. Dairy and, or cow? It was like or for uh, beef. Beef, right? And you got to sort of picture it. I'm like this little rambunctious eight year old running around cattle farm. The train comes through the farm because the farm's quite big. So you know the Train's got to go somewhere. So. Hang on, these aren't abandoned railway lines. These are no, working railway lines in no, the middle of yeah, the farm? They're working, yeah. And and they're going to work this day, too, because I was playing around with the cows and I didn't shut the gate completely. Oh, that's the primary sin, isn't it? And the train comes over the tracks, shakes the gate, the gate comes flying open, cows come out, and now the cows are running down the main street of this town and I'm running after the cows to try to do whatever it is an eight-year-old would do with a... What are you going to do when you catch them, When you catch them. And so I decided to do what any sensible person would do, which was to take a nap. When the cows laid down, I laid down with the cows. Where did the cows lay down? Oh, on the street. Right in the main, yeah, the main yeah. street. Yeah, in the main bit of the street. So, so people would have walked past, found a, a herd of cows and a, a little boy just having a nap in the uh-huh. street. That's correct. <laughs> yep. And the the cop was called, the one cop in the town. So they found me passed out, laying on top of a cow. You'd been born with a twin brother called David. What do you remember about life with David? Do you have any memories of him as a small uh, boy? I do. You know, very smart. So, like, having having said that he's smart, you know, one of the things I remember was, you know, when you're little kids and you, you go up to, like, a fireplace, David, like, leaned up against the, the thing and, and burned his hands a little bit. That was sort of the Chris's lesson of life is stay away from fire. Right. You know, you, you learn from someone, and I learned from David that you sort of keep your distance. Was he an identical twin or a fraternal one? Identical twin. Right. We were sort of, again, in this little town of 7,000 people, there's not that many identical twins running around. So we were quite notorious for getting into trouble. But he was a really good, he was probably the better of the two of us. So what became of him? He um, is going to die in mysterious circumstances. What age? Um, At four. There are two death certificates. And one says that he choked, and one says that he died of SIDS. Was it unsettling that that you're still alive and in the world and you're the doppelganger of this, this child? Was that unsettling for, for people and for you? Oh, yeah. I was sent away. I was sent to live with my grandmother because it was freaking everyone out that I looked like David. That's not your fault. No, but... It had an effect. It was giving everyone in the family a nervous breakdown. So oh, um, oh. I went and stayed with my grandmother for a while. And how was she six, with you? Six months. She was amazing. She was the great savior sort of the story is that, you know, if you're going to have something terrible happen, you have a grandmother who loves you and cares for you unconditionally and can sort of put the pieces back together. It's the kind of thing that that can break someone. And I was lucky that that I found someone who would hold me together. Tell me a bit about her. She's an important person in your life, isn't she? Well, she was a trip. She was postmaster, like a postmaster in the post office. In, the, um, in this town? you were In this town. And she was appointed by Eisenhower in 52. President Eisenhower is one, yeah. one of those... Those those people who were appointed to post the new the new lot of posts. Yeah, right? like it was like a patronage position in the fifties, being a postmaster of of local post offices. So she was a figure in the Republican Party then. She was. Again, we've got to remember this is like a different era of Republican Party, and we're talking about New England Republicans, like Eisenhower Republicans, are quite moderate, and 
Yeah, they were she, moderate and centrist, like Eisenhower himself. Yeah, yeah. like Eisenhower mm. himself. And my grandmother was, a, you know, a bit of a progressive woman. She owned property. She owned the trailer park in town. So this, you know, this blue-collar town had sort of a large trailer park, and she was a bit of a, a land baron and owned the trailer park. So she was really quite a substantial figure, maybe the most substantial figure in that town of yours. Well, she also ran the Salvation Army. Because her theory was you come to get your mail and you get a block of cheese and you get a gallon of milk. And she's got like, she's got half the town is living in her, on her property, you know, getting their milk, their mail and their bread. So she was a little bit the mayor. How long were you with her for at that time? So I was with her probably six to eight months in that dedicated period, but I would stay with her quite a lot. After your twin brother died, tell me what the doctors found out about you and, and your condition. Oh, so I have this thing called Brady-Tacky syndrome. What is that? So bradycardia is when you have a slow heart rate and tachycardia is when you have a fast heart rate. And if you mix the two together, then you get rather unpleasant arrhythmia. So your super, your heart goes super fast and then occasionally super slow. In other yeah, words. and the issue for it isn't that you would have a heart attack; it's that you'll have a stroke, because when your heart beats normal, it flushes all of the blood out of the heart each time. But if it goes a little slow or it goes a little off rhythm, oh. um, it a little pool of blood will form in the bottom of of the heart or the valve or whatever it is. And you might get a clot. And you get a clot. And then it shoots through and you end up in a, in a problem area. So hence this device I mentioned you had to wear. Tell me about this device and what oh, it was this like. Was a, this was also a trip. So I wore a little halter monitor. They were concerned that it was getting very low. Like my, my heart rate has at times gotten down to 28, which is quite slow. And it's hard to maintain consciousness in the 20s. And so I wore this halter monitor with little electrodes on your chest and attached to like basically like a little lunchbox. Because you got to remember, it's like 1985 and you're walking around with a lunchbox and electrodes attached to you. It's, right, well, it's strapped onto you. Essentially. Strapped, strapped onto on. you. And um, you everywhere, you went everywhere with this for a while? Yeah, I went everywhere with it for a while and it made me real popular. I, I was a popular kid. You're being sarcastic, really. I, I am. You are. They, the little kids would try to, like, pull your cords, like pull your lead off your chest because you're walking around and you're like a walking target, you know, with your little lunchbox with, uh, you know, little dials and things on it. And so I remember one day someone tried to swipe at me and pull my cord off. So I hit him in the head with the um, lunchbox. With the lunchbox, <laughs> and I got called into the principal's office, Mary Fisher. And the principal said to me, "She said, what 'What'd you do, Chris?'" And I said, "I hit him in the head with with the lunchbox." And she said, "Why?" And I said, "He tried to pull my cord." And she said, "Okay, just try not to hit anyone else with the lunchbox." You know, because she un she understood. So you're an obviously gay kid carrying a heart monitor around with you, with the deceased little brother, and that singled you out for, for rough treatment from the other kids. That's, that's very hard. Did you feel very alone? Or, or was the grandmother's love and, and family love enough to sustain you? I always felt really lucky. I mean, my story is, you know, I mean, did I miss David? Absolutely. But, but I always felt like I hit the jackpot with my grandma. How long did you have to wear this monitor for, Chris? Um, How many Was it years? Ten years. I also slept with a heart monitor as well, a separate one that they would wheel next to your bed. And because my heart rate got so low, I mean, it's really hard when your heart rate's going down 28 to take a kid off a heart monitor. After this, you became a competitive water skier. That's pretty wild. How did you do that, Chris? I grew up on a lake. Like, it's, it's really interesting, right? So all of this stuff is going on, and I'm in this idyllic New England town with a lake and living the lake life and water skiing all over the place, like getting up in the morning on the glassy water in 1989 and doing, you know, these water skiing tournaments that are really fun. And I'm, you know, all of... You know, I weigh like 90 pounds and 
So I'm zipping around doing competitive water skiing tournaments on a boat that's going 40 knots. It's sort of the the speed that you go at when you're going to slalom through different buoys. So I've never done it. I've never been water skiing. Is it as much fun as it looks? It's great. It's the falling that's the problem. <laughs> what happens when you fall? How, did, how hard do you hit the water? You hit pretty hard. Right. It's like landing on a cement oh. floor. So no matter how how hardened you'd been by everything that happened, you could always use a bit more hardening. In yeah, words. exactly. So you went to university in Virginia. Uh, you went down to Virginia, which is south of where you grew up. Tell me how you fell in love one day in a cafe there. Chris. Oh, I walked into the Artful Dodger, which is a cafe in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And this great love of my life looks up. He's sitting, his legs are crossed, and he's on the ground in the watching a band or something. Someone's playing the guitar. And Dan is sitting there. And as soon as our eyes met, I knew this was the person that I was going to love, you know, for the rest of my life. Love at first sight. Absolutely. It absolutely happens. Uh, it absolutely does happen. But is it hard to get people to believe it's happened? Once you say it's happened, you get the kind of the thunderbolt, as they call it in the Godfather movies. I mean, it changed everything for me. And I don't think when people hear my story... They think it's unbelievable. I think this is a relatable story. What was that feeling like then, to have that feeling of love at first sight? I knew that it was okay to be gay. Like, in that moment. Like, it dawned on me that if this is what it is, if this is what gay is, if gay is looking into this person's eyes and discovering an entirely new world, then that's a place I can I can live. But here's the thing about love at first sight. It's terrifying because you've just met this person. You've just, just seen them and suddenly you know this person, what they think and how they feel is suddenly going to have this incredible bearing on your happiness. Mm. And it's really terrifying. Did you feel that? Did you understand that in that moment? So in that moment I held it together. But if I can move you three months forward I was picking him up from the fall break he had gone home to New Jersey and I got him in the car and it dawned on me that I couldn't live another moment without telling this person that I loved him had you waited all that time? I'd waited three months and got him in the car and I wouldn't talk to him and he thought I was mad at him and all of a sudden I did that dramatic thing where I took the car and turned it off the side of the road and I turned to him and I said, I love you. And I kissed him. And and I thought, I'm all in. This is it. This is the this is this is the whole shebang. And he, you know, took me by the shoulders and he looked at me and he said, I love you too. And and it was the greatest moment of my life. So what happened when you brought Dan, this man you'd fallen in love with, home to meet your folks? Well, it was a little complicated. I grew up in a quite a violent house. And shortly before I brought Dan home, I had had a call with my father. And there was a job that I was supposed to interview for that I had been offered that I turned down because I was looking for a different job. And he said, you know, I can't believe I have a son who's so stupid that he turned down the job. And I just had had enough. And I said, well, I can't believe I have a father who beat his children. And so that's the setting for me bringing Dan to the house. My father wasn't there. My mother had found a safe period of time for, for me to, to bring him. So I walked in with Dan and... And he met everyone, and it was going. It was going great. It was going amazing. Just like this on this lake house overlooking this beautiful place where I'd skied so many times. And then the my father's car pulled in the driveway, and the whole we're standing on the front deck of the of the lake house, and my mother just looks at me and she goes, "Run." And I knew that this was a really dangerous moment 
and I took Dan and I walked him around the front of the house while my father came in the back and walked him up to the car and got him in the car and sat him down in there and and I took out the keys and I went to put him in the in the ignition and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't run anymore. So I stopped and I I turned to Dan and I handed him the keys and I said, if I'm not back in 10 minutes, drive. And I got out of the car and I walked back to the front of the house, to the deck, and my father was screaming because um, my car was, you know, he knew what my car looked like. And he was screaming and, and I just said, excuse me, everyone, I'm going to go have a good rest of the day. Goodbye. And I turned and I walked back to the car, back to Dan. And, and I was waiting to be hit with a baseball bat. And um, it didn't happen. I got to the car and we drove. And Dan kept wanting to, like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? And he, and he knew the story, but, but, you know, are we okay? And I just said, let's just get to a safe distance outside of the neighborhood and then we'll talk. What state were you in? Were you shaking? It was the, it's the most important thing I've done in my life. It's the most independent I've ever been. That's the state I was in. I was in a state of independence where I had turned my back literally and figuratively on a life that was, that was, dangerous and violent and I needed to choose my own path. So it was that act of civility of you saying it's been nice, I'm going to be leaving now, have a lovely evening that kind of set the tone in a way like like you were strong enough and old enough to say we're all going to be grown-ups here, we're all going to talk like normal human beings rather than act as though we're living under the threat of this man. That I would credit to my grandmother. That was a touch of Virginia. I don't think I have any ownership to that. I think that is me being raised properly by, you know, I am my, my grandmother's son. And I think I'd credit her with that. I love that line, I am my grandmother's son. Hmm. So 1999, you go to Washington. You get yes. a job as an aide-de-camp for... U.S. Republican senator for the state of Virginia, John Warner. This is still in the era when you had moderate Republicans like John Warner, a very powerful senator. He was enormously influential. He was head of the Foreign Relations Committee for a while, wasn't he? Armed Services Committee. Armed Services Committee, that's right. So he, he, was, he was almost as powerful as the Defence Secretary, like a very powerful figure. Wasn't he married to Elizabeth Taylor? Sorry, I'm just going to bring that straight up there. Wasn't he married to he Elizabeth was. Taylor? He was, <laughs> and I'm his his aide-de-camp, his body man, his personal aide. So I got the job because I could play tennis. And there's an indoor tennis court in the Senate office building. And so I'm playing tennis with him, and that's the audition for the job, it, the, is playing tennis with him. And we had a great hit that day, and we had a great time. And he was looking for someone he could hang around with. And I'm 20, like... Uh, and so he wanted to just hang out with the guys and I'm not exactly the guys, but I come pretty close. I did say Elizabeth Taylor though there. Did you, did that mean, was she, was he still married to her when you worked for him or was she, uh, were they divorced by then? They were divorced. They were married in the eighties, but she called him quite a lot and I would take the phone calls because I'm his PA so she doesn't call him, she calls me. Was she nice to you or was she, she Hollywood star-like? She was great to me. Was it wild though, picking up the phone and going, it's Elizabeth Taylor here? It was it like that? Yes, it was exactly like that. And it was super weird. And Liz, if I can say that, was always very nice to me. And toward this period of her life, she was having a lot of health problems and she was a little down and a bit dour, but she's still Elizabeth Taylor. Cleopatra, um, man. Exactly. And Warner loved that he was married to Elizabeth Taylor. I, I'll tell you the story, if that's all right. We pulled into the British Embassy, and he said, oh, I met my second wife here. And I said, 
oh, oh, really, Senator? And he said, yeah, I, he was the chairman of the Bicentennial in 1976 for the 200th anniversary of the United States. So the Queen had come over to the British Embassy and had brought her guest of honor, British citizen Elizabeth Taylor. And the president of the United States, had Gerald Ford, had brought his guest of honor, the chairman of the Bicentennial, John Warner. And so that's how they were introduced by the Queen and the President of the United States, <laughs> and that was their first date. <laughs> wow. And I'm just sitting mm. there, and so it, extraordinary. And so Liz is calling, and he's talking to her, and, you know, we're driving around the British Embassy. I have to ask, what's she calling about? Is, is, is she calling um, from advice? Wants to chat. I mean, she just wanted to check in. and So they, they divorced, but they remained close after yes, the divorce. Yes, absolutely. Um, because they were married for I think eight years. Like it wasn't like it wasn't one of these you know shotgun twelve hour marriages. They were married for I think eight years, and she thought she was going to be first lady. And wow, mind boggles, doesn't it? it President does. John Warner and First Lady Elizabeth Taylor. Exactly. Wow, and that's what she thought. And when it became clear that he was a bit more of a that that was not his ambition, then I think things went a different way. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Now, this was in the era of don't ask, don't tell, a policy I think Bill Clinton introduced for the United States military. The idea was that you wouldn't be asked your sexuality if you were serving the United States Armed Forces and you wouldn't tell, you wouldn't publicly identify yourself as such. Tell me about how that got you involved in becoming an advocate for policy change, Chris. So I left Senator Warner's office and I started volunteering. And I started volunteering for a group which was working on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, in case of the military. And they were holding a fundraiser for World War II vets. And they asked me to help out and make some phone calls. And I was reading Palimpsest by Gore Vidal. And I sent him a note in Ravalo, Italy, that basically said, Hi, I'm Chris. I knew Liz Taylor and worked for John Warner. Do you want to come to our Gays in the Military event? He wasn't able to make it from Ravalo, but right. he called. So he calls me on the phone. Was that scary? He's, you know, yes. famously razor sharp and terrifying and sarcastic. I was in the office and I, they said, oh, you have a call on line one. I said, I'm in a meeting. They said, it's Gore Vidal on line one. I answer the phone and he wants to chat about Liz. And Gore Vidal's stepsister is Jacqueline Kennedy. And he's he very wants, gossipy too. Very gossipy. Mm. Wants, to, wants to hear the goss and mm. all this stuff. And so I help out with this issue and sort of flash forward, they turn around and hire me as the first lobbyist in the United States for repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Now, a couple of decades ago, when this was an issue with the Australian military, a former head of the Victorian RSL said, you know, when he was serving in World War II, there were no, no gays in the military then. And of course, there was a flood of letters to the newspapers. Uh, in Australia, there was a great quote from an Australian general. Who, in Australia, they said it was a bit like Y2K. Everyone thought it might be an issue, and it, and it just wasn't. In America, it was political plutonium, and I used to go into offices, and people would be visibly shaken to be talking about gays in the military. They remember this is two thousand two now, after the September eleventh attacks. After the September eleventh yeah. attacks, and we thought that that was an opportunity to have a new conversation about it because. They were trying to fire gay Arabic linguists during a time when we needed Arabic linguists, every single one of them that we could get our hands on. There were untranslated notes from Al-Qaeda that had come through. It came but, down to gay Arabic translators? Well, they it hadn't come to them specifically, but there were two competing issues. 
there were untranslated threats against the United States in Arabic, and we were firing gay Arabic linguists at the same time. And so it dawned on America, it finally dawned on America, that gays in the military was a national security issue. Given that you'd been an aide to a very powerful senator, and a Republican senator at that, did that mean your work was involved in public campaigns or quiet and private lobbying of senators and congressmen and congresswomen in their offices? My work specifically was mostly behind the scenes, wheeling and dealing. There was a public campaign. Lady Gaga gets involved in Don't Ask, Don't Tell at some point. But my role was working with senators and working with presidents and getting yelled at in the West Wing. And how do you do that, Chris? Is there a kind of approach you take when you have to walk into the office of a powerful senator and sit down and persuade them when they really might need to be made to be moved on the issue? What what approach do you take when when you're talking to a, a senator? People won't do, in my experience, won't do the right thing to do. They make a choice because the penalty for not doing it is too high. Even my good friends on issues. So, for instance, Hillary Clinton. I've worked with Hillary when she was in the Senate for a long time. And I would say to Senator Clinton, I'm trying to get you to take a position you already hold. You already hold. This is is already your position. We just want you to go public. And... On issues that are particularly difficult, I often talked about them as loser issues. These issues like that are political plutonium, you really need to increase the penalty on your friends. I hate to say it, but I think it's the truth. People don't do it because it's the right thing to do. So you want to make it hard for Hillary Clinton in a cocktail party, in other words? Yes, I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I you have to impose a penalty. You You've got to make it hurt. People need um, politicians, especially in the American system. It is a penalty-driven system, and um, they have a lot of competing attention, and you need to to be there as the the enthusiasm gap or the whatever the issue is. We did it with Obama. Like, I mean, we, we also had to sort of smooth things out, but giving him a rough time is sometimes the way it needs to happen. But it also sounds like in that meeting you have with the Hillary Clintons of this world and other senators, that you are appealing to their conscience. You're saying, we just want you to take a public position on a position you already hold. Isn't that a bit like, you know, make it easy for you to sleep at night? Is that what you're, is that the appeal you're making when you say that? Well, mine's a bit more laden with, you're going to read about it in the New York Times tomorrow if you don't come out in favor of this. Yeah, former aides to Republican senators, a threat coming from like that won't, won't go over very well. So do you, you can't no. deliver it as a threat. So what do you, how do you leave them with that impression? You basically make them aware that you know the facts as they are and that they could be turned into a really important story with particular audiences like the gay community and that you don't want them to get the wrong idea. I don't want gay people to get the wrong idea that Hillary isn't in favor of gays in the military. I want her to be a champion and help me help you to make her the champion that we know she already is on an issue she already supports. So when President Obama announced the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it seemed like an anticlimax in a way. Maybe that's the whole point of instituting a reform. It has to sort of feel inevitable. Yeah, you've got to make it a reality before it becomes a reality. Yeah, you want a soft landing. By this time, you're in your 30s. And this is when you had another health incident, the thing you kind of referred to very obliquely at the start of our conversation. Tell me how you realised something was wrong with your health. So I'd been at a club the night before and I was in line to the bathroom and I'd fallen down. I'd collapsed in the line and I'd, I'd passed out. So I went home, slept, thought everything was okay. It wasn't, I didn't feel okay. But anyway, I went to work, was on this donor call and realized I was in an emergency. So I went over to my cardiologist and I was in bradycardia, tachycardia, arrhythmia and flutter all at the same time. And I was about to stroke out. And the doctor 
transferred me to the to the emergency room and the doctors said you're going to die so we're going to do a cardioversion on you because nothing else is working and you're about to stroke out on us he said you were going to die if, yeah. if they didn't perform this emergency action. And what was the emergency action? Yeah, they were going to stop my heart, pull out the paddles, charge, zap me, let me lay there for a minute to reset the heart, and then bring me back, and then zap me again and bring me back. Bloody hell, they're going to reboot you like a computer, were they? Exactly, yeah, like flip the switch. So they're going to artificially stop your heart and then start it again and hope that it would get back into sync. Is that what it was? That's correct. Do you remember this happening or were you under? Uh, oh, I was under. So you went under thinking, I'm under, wake up again? Well, that didn't dawn on me until the very end. <laughs> I hadn't called anyone to tell them that I was going through this procedure. It was all happening quite quickly. And I thought maybe I should call someone, but I didn't want anyone to get worried. And then they started shaving my chest, you know, to line up the paddles. Then I thought this could be the very last thing I do. And I started to think that was that maybe I should have called someone, but I, I hadn't. So clearly it worked. You're still here it, talking to me. You didn't die. I'm still here. And coming to again, did you feel okay? Was it like it never happened or something? No, it feels like a horse kicks you in the chest. Right. But it worked and it reset my heart. And I've been in really good shape since then. And I went to the gym this morning and... So, again, this is a story, Richard, about a lucky person who's lived a lucky life, and I've been enormously fortunate. And not so long ago, you won the lottery. You moved to Australia. I did. <laughs> Was it sharks that brought you here? Uh, warm sun beach gaze. <laughs> but... How about the absence of guns and free healthcare? What about that? I'm sure that was a, that was a nice thing to throw into the pot too. Absolutely, my I cherish my little green card. I have a great cardiologist. So you came here. One of the reasons, one of the very largest reasons, work-wise, was to rush to the defence of sharks. What is it about the language around shark incidents, as you call them, that made you want to take up another unpopular cause, the defence of sharks in Australia? Forty percent of reported shark attacks have no injury. There's no injury. So it's a shark encounter rather than a shark attack? Yes. 40% of them? 40%. We're using the wrong word. Our language is incorrect. Like if you're swimming and a shark goes by, that's called a shark attack? Yes. Can I use an example on you? Please. This is a one that's near and dear, and I am not... Let me preface this by saying that if you are involved in a shark interaction, you can call it whatever you want to. I'm not saying people can't call it, but McFanning, 2015, the shark got caught in his leg rope. He wasn't bitten and he wasn't injured in any way, shape or form other than it being a really traumatizing event. But there wasn't a shark bite. And that was reported as the biggest shark attack of 2015. Is this common in the United States as well? Yes. This kind of language? Yeah. In California, they've just changed it to shark incident. The state of California, 53 million people, they've just changed it to shark incident. And in the number of shark incidents that have no injury is 39%. What's the cause here? What's, what do you think is the reason why, if, as you say, we conflate these shark encounters, can we blame this on Jaws or, or does it precede all that? I think it's a little more layered. I think you can blame it on Jaws, and I think you can look at historical references to shark attacks. I mean, I, I, I always get in trouble for talking about the fact that Australia called them shark accidents until 1935, right? They weren't shark, shark accidents. They were called shark accidents. In the Shark Menace Advisory Committee report in 1933, they're called shark accidents, like beach accidents, which are quite common at the time. But that language changes to shark attack and shark nets are put in, for instance, and the rogue shark theory is born and there's this theory that sharks get a taste for human flesh and that certainly wouldn't be an accident, right? It's not an accident if a rogue shark comes after you. So there's this connective tissue, pardon the phrase, between rogue sharks and shark attack in the intent of the animal to that is like intentionally looking and hunting and 
preying on you when we know that shark bites are defensive and curious in mistaken identity. Sharks don't know what we are. They've been around for 60 million years, the species. We've been in the water for 60,000. And there aren't that many of us in the water at any one time. So it's often thought that when a shark takes a bite into a human, it's because they've mistaken the human for a seal or something like that. That's exactly what it is. It's, we refer to it as a biological failure. It's like biting into a piece of bony chicken, right? When, when they bite into us, they know immediately that we are a waste of time. And so it's really a bite and spit more so than it is trying to consume. I watched Jaws again recently, and it's great. Jaws is fantastic. It's so entertaining, but it's nonsensical. The monster in it is this gigantic shark, great white shark, and it's not just hungry. It's not so much it has the taste for human flesh. It has a hatred of humans. Do you think that does speak of a need that humans have to have monsters? The story of folk devils is a long one in human history, right? And the way that we tell these narratives to come up with monsters, and movie monsters are a great example, they serve a purpose. I understand it, and I, lo I love Jaws personally. I mean, it got me motivated to do the research I do. So I think there is a usefulness to the narrative in the way that we're like we pick it up like uh, i travel all over the world and whether i'm in cape town or cape cod or perth everyone will say oh i know the shark that that bit that bit the person it's over there it's a 20 foot gray lady and she's just over there and if in her babies are the ones that bite everyone and there's a shark, you know, it's a it's sort of a rogue shark story. So, like, it's both useful and you see it play out in, like, daily life today. Tell me about your experience of going out at night to tag bull sharks in Sydney Harbour. Now, we don't really overreact to sharks, but they are. <laughs> I'm sure they don't like being interrupted in the course of their, their evening swim, and uh, they can be a bit bitey. How do you do that? How do you actually tag a shark in Sydney Harbour at night, Chris? So I leave most of the tagging to Amy Smoothie and Vic Pettimores, but I was a very eager observer. What you do is, and they work with DPI, with the Department of Primary Industries and Fisheries, and we go out at 4 o'clock in the morning. So you set your hooks at midnight around Sydney Harbour, at 4 o'clock in the morning, you let them sit for four hours. And at 4 a.m., you pull up the chain and you're going to have a bull shark in the summer. An unhappy bull shark? <laughs> a, a stressed out bull shark will come to the surface. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to stress it out a little bit more by mm -hmm. flipping it upside down and putting it into tonic immobility. And then... Whoa, back up a second there. Yep. If you flip a shark upside down, that puts oh. it into tonic immobility, you say? What, it just It just becomes like... Yep, like, like, a catatonic. Com like comatose catatonic. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's like a safety response to being inverted. So you flip it upside down, and then Amy leans over and puts a stitch, like a, opens a little slit in the stomach and sticks in a receiver because there's an array, like a sonar array in Sydney Harbor that picks up little pings from sharks that are swimming around. And so you stick the receiver in the stomach and then you sew it back up. Then you turn it back around and it comes out of tonic immobility and that's where you need to be very careful. Mm -hmm. Okay, the shark is now active and you let it swim off happily, hopefully. And you have another successful tags bull shark and you just repeat that about 20 more times. What's that like for you to be that close to these, these creatures? Bull sharks are really ugly. <laughs> Sorry to any <laughs> bull shark lovers out there. But in my opinion, they're the fishiest of the fish. Like, I've also helped tag great white sharks. Great whites are just great whites. They're, they're not, I mean, it's hard. An 18-foot great white is not a, a fish. 
I mean, this is part of the problem, right? Is what they make a good movie monster because they're they're not a guppy. Yeah, you're gonna have trouble flipping them over. Yeah, yes, you? you are. Yeah, to get yes. them into state of yes, you are like mobility. Yes, but that's mm. what if I can share. That's mm. what orcas do. So orcas, when they attack great white sharks, they grab them at the by, uh, by the front of the face and turn them upside down in order to eat their liver. That's amazing. Yeah. I suppose this is a sign, too, of like my interest and your, your interest. These are fascinating creatures, aren't they? Mm. How has the media reported on your work in the United States, Chris? They've reported on it. I wouldn't say that it's been sort of a party, but it's certainly been noteworthy. So, for instance, um, Stephen Colbert on The Late Show... He's uh, talked about your work? ...has talked about my research. He hasn't mentioned me by name, but came pretty close and uh, did a segment on how we're trying to change change shark attack to shark encounter and things like that. Right, he thinks you're doing euphemisms or something, does he? Yeah. Well, he said, what do you say to somebody that a shark encountered their leg and had a not being alive incident, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and I, I understand that. And it's sort of, you know, made for late night. Tucker Carlson was not as friendly. Really? Yeah, he mm. said a University of Sydney researcher is, oh, I think it was the loony left is where I fell. You know, so Tucker Carlson, Stephen Colbert, the New York Times has done three stories on my research, and they said that it was quite demure and polite. Oh, so they think you're you're calling for political correctness towards sharks. That's is that correct. what it is? That's okay. It. Yeah. But what are you calling for then? How would you counter that argument? I don't think the issue with shark attack is that shark attack hurts sharks. The sharks don't know what you're calling them. The, the issue is that when you use the phrase shark attack, when 40% of shark attacks have no injury, you are creating a scenario where people have a disproportionate fear, where you're not being honest with them about the fact that 40% of the time people bump into sharks and they don't get bitten, there's no injury at all. You are raising their level of fear. You also give them a false sense of security about how to respond to sharks like, you're getting them both ways. And I just think, fundamentally, we need to tell people the truth, which is that sometimes there are sightings, sometimes there are encounters, sometimes there are shark bites, and sometimes there are fatal shark bites. But that's four different things that can happen. I think every culture has it's got, it's got massive irrational points. It seems like it's something I, you can't speak rationally into at the moment. It ruins the story. People like the story more than they like the reality. Yeah, I'm good at dinner parties. I do I do some of my best work at dinner parties because my stories are out there. But nobody wants to hear that I was out there on the boat for eight hours and the shark wouldn't come to the surface. And when it turns out sharks just aren't really that interested in humans at all anyway, and or boats or chum or any of it. And that when they say they can smell the blood from a mile away, that's really not exactly accurate because... Uh, there's so much chum in the water, like there's so much fish oil and whatever that they smell the fish oil a lot more than they smell the blood. So it's sort of like if I put like a candy bar on your desk and then I put a fried chicken next to it and I walked into your door and it was, can I technically smell the candy bar? Maybe, but I smell the chicken a lot more. So you're trying to sell the headline, dog doesn't bite man. Which won't so many papers. Right. So another one of these loser issues. This is These are my issues, Richard. <laughs> what's the next loser issue you want to take on? Um, what's concerning you at the moment? The big one where my heart is, is I'm going to work on twin loss. So twinless twin. I started a group in Australia called Australia Twinless Twin. And it's sort of gone up and gone down. But the point is that, like, it's a hard one. Like, people don't want to talk about sibling loss or twin loss and at some point turning that discourse around into something that is approachable for people and accessible is something I care about. I would imagine that nonetheless if you've you are a twinless twin you would want to talk about it with another twinless twin like yourself. Is this you wanting that conversation yourself Chris? I'm I mean, A, I always want to, you know, I think it's, I think it is useful and important to have those conversations. But for me personally, 
I'm okay. I've done the work that I need to do for me and for David and for the things that that mean the most to me in that relationship. I believe you, but wouldn't after that a loss like that, I imagine it would affect you in ways you can barely perceive. And maybe if you're talking to other people, you might recognize something in yourself hearing someone else's story. Well, it's interesting. So we did that. We had this um, workshop where we brought Australian twins twins together from all across Australia, every state. And the common story throughout the thing was that most of the families had not told the twin that they lost a twin. Maybe it was a stillbirth, maybe it was in utero, whatever it was, had happened. And in almost every case, the twin went to the parents and said, is there, is there something like that you're not telling me? Because like, something is just off in my life. And, and, and all in these cases, the parents said yes whether it was in vitro fertilization and they there was an egg that was lost or what whatever you know what I mean whatever the whatever the thing was that that happened and they it was a revelation for them that this had happened and so that's an area that I I I do care about because we had approached the multiple birth association and asked them if they would work with us and they said no that it was too upsetting to the parents and and I completely understand that but I would like to get to a point where we can have that conversation. Chris, it's been amazing speaking with you. What an extraordinary story that brings together so many disparate threads into a single life. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Chris Pepper-Neff is a lecturer in public policy at Sydney University. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Remember a time when you had one good outfit? Now the average Australian buys 56 items of clothing a year. And it feels like we're on a fast fashion treadmill that's kind of hard to get off. So, how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of Threads, the podcast that undresses the fast fashion industry. From the marketing tricks that are being used on us right now... They're going to use social media to hunt down their prey. Bang, 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 bang. ..to the lies. So, greenwashing is a marketing strategy that gives you a reason to buy. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Threads. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.